Welcome to Light and Shadow, a podcast about the complex themes presented in the horror genre. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. day had been one unceasing fall of snow, from sunrise until the gradual withdrawal of the vague white light outside indicated that the sun had set again. But as usual, at this hospitable and delightful house of Edward Chandler, where I often spent Christmas, and was spending it now, there had been no lack of entertainment, and the hours had passed with a rapidity that had surprised us. A short billiard tournament had filled up the time between breakfast and lunch, with badminton and the morning papers for those who were temporarily not engaged, while afterwards, the interval till tea time had been occupied by the majority of the party in a huge game of hide-and-seek all over the house, barring the billiard room, which was sanctuary for any who desired peace. But few had done that. The enchantment of Christmas, I must suppose, had, like some spell, made children of us again, and it was with palsied terror and trembling misgivings that we had tiptoed up and down the dim passages, from any corner of which some wild, screaming form might dart out upon us. Then, wearied with exercise and emotion, we had assembled again for tea in the hall, a room of shadows and panels on which the light from the wide open fireplace, where there burned a divine mixture of peat and logs, flickered and grew bright again on the walls. Then, as was proper, ghost stories, for the narration of which the electric light was put out, so that the listeners might conjecture anything they pleased to be lurking in the corners, bones, skeleton, armor, or shrieks. After everyone had settled in with a glass of whiskey or cider, our host, Edward, spoke up, asking, Who will bring us a tale for Christmas, then? I have something, I said. A story about a maker of toys and a Christmas ball. Let's have it, then, Edward said, anxious to begin the Yuletide ritual. This story comes from a small town in the Black Forest, where my grandmother was born. There lived there a very wonderful old fellow named Nicholas Geibel. His business was the making of mechanical toys, at which work he had acquired an almost European reputation. He made rabbits that would emerge from the heart of a cabbage, flop their ears, smooth their whiskers, and disappear again. Cats that would wash their faces and mew so naturally that dogs would mistake them for real cats and fly at them. Dolls with phonographs concealed within them that would raise their hats and say, good morning, how do you do? And some that would even sing a song. But he was something more than a mere mechanic. He was an artist. His work was with him a hobby, almost a passion. 
His shop was filled with all manner of strange things that never would or could be sold. Things he had made for the pure love of making them. He had contrived a mechanical donkey that would trot for two hours by means of stored electricity, and trot, too, much faster than the live article, and with less need for exertion on the part of the driver. A bird that would shoot up into the air, fly round and round in a circle, and drop to the earth at the exact spot from where it started. A skeleton that, supported by an upright iron bar, would dance, and a life-size lady doll that could play the fiddle, and a gentleman with a hollow inside who could smoke a pipe and drink more lager beer than any three average German students put together, which is saying much. Indeed, it was the belief of the town that old Geibel could make a man capable of doing everything that a respectable man need want to do. One day, however, he made a man who did too much, and it came about in this way. Young Dr. Fallen had a baby, and on the occasion of its first Christmas, Mrs. Dr. Fallen gave a ball in honor of the event. Old Geibel and his daughter Olga were among the guests. During the afternoon of the next day, some three or four of Olga's bosom friends who had also been present at the ball dropped in to have a chat about it. They naturally fell to discussing the men and to criticizing their dancing. Old Geibel was in the room, but he appeared to be absorbed in his newspaper, and the girls took no notice of him. There seem to be fewer men who could dance at every ball you go to, said one of the girls. Yes, and don't the ones who can give themselves airs, said another. They make quite a favor of asking you. And how stupidly they talk, added a third. They always say exactly the same things. How charming you are looking tonight. Do you often go to Vienna? Oh, you should. It's delightful. What a charming dress you have on. What a warm day it has been. Do you like Wagner? I do wish they'd think of something new. Oh, I never mind how they talk, said a fourth. If a man dances well, he may be a fool for all I care. He generally is, slipped in a thin girl, rather spitefully. I go to a ball to dance, continued the previous speaker, not noticing the interruption. All I ask is that he should hold me firmly, take me around steadily, and not get tired before I do. A clockwork figure would be the thing for you, said the girl who had interrupted. Bravo, cried one of the others, clapping her hands. What a capital idea. What's a capital idea, they asked. Why, a clockwork dancer, or better still, one that would go by electricity and never run down. The girls took up the idea with enthusiasm. Oh, what a lovely partner he would make, said one. He would never kick you or tread on your toes. Or tear your dress, said another. Or get out of step. Or get giddy and lean on you. And he would never want to mop his face with his handkerchief. I do hate to see a man do that after every dance. And he wouldn't want to spend the whole evening in the supper room. Why, with a phonograph inside him to grind out all the stock remarks, you would not be able to tell him from a real man, said the girl who had first suggested the idea. Oh, yes, you would, said the thin girl. He would be so much nicer. 
Old Geibel laid down his paper and was listening with both his ears. When he saw one of the girls glancing in his direction, however, he hurriedly hid himself again behind it. After the girls were gone, he went into his workshop, where Olga had heard him walking up and down, and every now and then chuckling to himself. And that night, he talked to her a good deal about dancing and dancing men, asked what dances were most popular, what steps were gone through, with many other questions bearing on the subject. Then, for a couple of months, he kept much to his factory and was very thoughtful and busy, though prone at unexpected moments to break into a quiet, low laugh, as if enjoying a joke that no one else knew of. The next Christmas, another ball took place in that city. On this occasion, it was given by Old Winsel, the wealthy timber merchant, to celebrate the season, and Geibel and his daughter were again among the invited. When the hour arrived to set out, Olga sought her father. Not finding him in the house, she tapped at the door of his workshop. He appeared in his shirt sleeves, looking hot but radiant. Don't wait for me, he said. You go on. I'll follow you. I've got something to finish. As she turned to obey, he called after her. Tell them I'm going to bring a young man with me. Such a nice young man and an excellent dancer. All the girls will like him. Then he laughed and closed the door. Her father generally kept his doing secret from everybody, but she had a pretty shrewd suspicion of what he had been planning, and so, to a certain extent, was able to prepare the guests for what was coming. Anticipation ran high, and the arrival of the famous machinist was eagerly awaited. At length, the sound of wheels was heard outside, followed by a great commotion in the passage, and old Winsel himself, his jolly face red with excitement and suppressed laughter, burst into the room and announced, Air Geibel and a friend. Air Geibel and his friend entered, greeted with shouts of laughter and applause, and advanced to the center of the room. Allow me, ladies and gentlemen, said Geibel, to introduce you to my friend, Lieutenant Fritz. Fritz, my dear fellow, bow to the ladies and gentlemen. Geibel placed his hand encouragingly on Fritz's shoulder, and the lieutenant bowed low, accompanying the action with a harsh clicking noise in his throat, unpleasantly suggestive of a death rattle. But that was only a detail. He walks a little stiffly. Old Geibel took his arm and walked him forward a few steps. He certainly did walk stiffly. But then, walking is not his forte. He is essentially a dancing man. I have only been able to teach him the waltz as yet, but at that he is faultless. Come, which of you ladies may I introduce to him as a partner? He keeps perfect time. He never gets tired. He won't kick you or tread on your dress. He will hold you as firmly as you like and go as quickly or as slowly as you please. He never gets giddy and he is full of conversation. Come, speak up for yourself, my boy. The old gentleman twisted one of the buttons at the back of his coat, and immediately Fritz opened his mouth, and in thin tones that appeared to proceed from the back of his head, remarked suddenly, 
may I have the pleasure? And then shut his mouth again with a snap. That Lieutenant Fritz had made a strong impression on the company was undoubted, yet none of the girls seemed inclined to dance with him. They looked curiously at his waxen face, with its staring eyes and fixed smile, and shuddered. At last, old Geibel came to the girl who had conceived of the idea. It is your own suggestion, carried out to the letter, said Geibel, an electric dancer. You owe it to the gentleman to give him a trial. She was a bright, saucy girl, fond of a frolic. Her host added his entreaties, and she consented. Ergeibel fixed the figure to her. Its right arm was screwed around her waist and held her firmly. Its delicately jointed left hand was made to fasten upon her right. The old toy maker showed her how to regulate its speed, how to stop it, and how to release herself. It will take you around in a complete circle, he explained. Be careful that no one knocks against you and alters its course. The music struck up. Old Geibel put the current in motion, and Annette and her strange partner began to dance. For a while, everyone stood watching them. The figure performed its purpose admirably, keeping perfect time and step and holding its little partner tightly clasped in an unyielding embrace, it revolved steadily, pouring forth at the same time a constant flow of squeaky conversation, broken by brief intervals of grinding silence. How charming you are looking tonight, it remarked in its thin, faraway voice. What a lovely day it has been. Do you like dancing? How well our steps agree. You will give me another, won't you? Oh, don't be so cruel. What a charming gown you have on. Isn't waltzing delightful? I could go on dancing forever with you. Have you had supper? As she grew more familiar with the uncanny creature, the girl's nervousness wore off, and she entered into the fun of the thing. Oh, he's just lovely, she cried, laughing. I could go on dancing with him all my life. Couple after couple now joined them, and soon all the dancers in the room were whirling around them. Nicholas Geibel stood looking on, beaming with childish delight at his success. Old Wenzel approached him and whispered something in his ear. Geibel laughed and nodded, and the two worked their way quietly towards the door. This is the young people's house tonight, said Wenzel, as soon as they were outside. You and I will have a quiet pipe and a glass of whiskey over in the counting house. Meanwhile, the dancing grew more fast and furious. Little Annette loosened the screw, regulating her partner's rate of progress, and the figure flew round with her swifter and swifter. Couple after couple dropped out exhausted, but they only went the faster, till at length they remained dancing alone. Madder and madder became the waltz. The music lagged behind. The musicians, unable to keep pace, ceased and sat staring. 
The younger guests applauded, but the older faces began to grow anxious. Hadn't you better stop, dear? said one of the women. You'll make yourself so tired. But Annette did not answer. I believe she's fainted, cried out a girl who had caught sight of her face as it swept by. One of the men sprang forward and clutched at the figure, but its impetus threw him down onto the floor, where its still cased feet laid bare his cheek. The thing evidently did not intend to part with its prize so easily. Had anyone retained a cool head, the figure, one cannot help thinking, might easily have been stopped. Two or three men acting in concert might have lifted it bodily off the floor, or have jammed it into a corner. But few human heads are capable of remaining cool under excitement. Those who are not present think how stupid must have been those who were. Those who reflect afterwards how simple it would have been to do this or that or the other, if only they had thought of it at the time. The women grew hysterical. The men shouted contradictory directions to one another. Two of them made a bungling rush at the figure, which had the result of forcing it out of its orbit at the center of the room and sending it crashing against the walls and the furniture. A stream of blood showed itself down the girl's white frock and followed her along the floor. The affair was becoming horrible. The women rushed screaming from the room, and the men followed them. One sensible suggestion was made. Find Geibel. Fetch Geibel. No one had noticed him leave the room. No one knew where he was. A party went in search of him. The others, too unnerved to go back into the ballroom, crowded outside the door and listened. They could hear the steady whir of the wheels upon the polished floor as the thing spun round and round, the dull thud as every now and again it dashed itself and its burden against some opposing object and ricocheted off in a new direction. And everlastingly it talked in that thin, ghostly voice, repeating over and over the same formula. How charming you look tonight. What a lovely day it has been. Oh, don't be so cruel. I could go on dancing forever with you. Have you had supper? Of course, they sought Geibel everywhere but where he was. They looked in every room in the house, and they rushed off in a body to his own place and spent precious minutes waking up his deaf old housekeeper. At last, it occurred to one of the party that Wenzel was missing also. And then the idea of the counting house across the yard presented itself to them, and there they found him. He rose up, very pale, and followed them, and he and old Wenzel forced their way through the crowd of guests gathered outside and entered the room and locked the door behind them. From within, there came the muffled sound of low voices and quick steps, followed by a confused scuffling noise, then silence, then the low voices again. After a time, 
the door opened, and those near it pressed forward to enter, but old Wenzel's broad head and shoulders barred the way. I want you and you, he said, addressing a couple of the elder men. His voice was calm, but his face was deadly white. The rest of you, please go get the women away as quickly as you can. And from that day, old Nicholas Geibel no longer aspired to create dancing skeletons or men that could smoke pipes. He instead confined himself to the making of mechanical rabbits and cats that mewed and washed their faces. After I had given my contribution, Edward spoke. He was sitting opposite me in the full blaze of the fire, looking, after the illness he had gone through during the autumn, still rather pale and delicate. All the same, he had been among the boldest and best in the exploration of dark places that afternoon, and the look on his face now rather startled me. A chorus of invitation asked him to proceed with his story, the real true ghost story firsthand, which was what seemed to be indicated was too precious a thing to lose. There was a stir of movement about the circle around the fire, and the movement was not of purely physical order. It was as if, this is only what I personally felt, it was as if the childish gaiety of the hours we had passed that day was suddenly withdrawn. We had jested on certain subjects. We had played hide-and-seek with all the power of earnestness that was in us. But now, so it seemed to me, there was going to be real hide-and-seek. Real terrors were going to lurk in dark corners. Or if not real terrors, terrors so convincing as to assume the garb of reality were going to pounce on us. The room still remained in dubious darkness, except for the sudden lights disclosed on the walls by the leaping flames on the hearth and there was wide field for conjecture as to what might lurk in the dim corners. Edward, moreover, who had been sitting in the bright light before, was banished by the extinction of some flaming log into the shadows. His voice alone spoke to us as he sat back in his low chair, a voice rather slow, but very distinct. Edward began his tale. I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps we could play it instead of hide and seek someday. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. You turn out the lights, and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee, but of course, they don't know who they are looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee. The other player answers, Smee, and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they will be discovered by a third player, 
he will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Edward? Yes, he answered. Have you met the Sangstons? They are cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. Well, I went down for that Christmas. Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet introduced me to the people I didn't know. Then it was time to go in to dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of a tall, dark-haired woman whom I hadn't met before. Everyone was rather in a hurry, and I am always bad at catching people's names. She didn't look at all friendly, but she was interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask, because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at the table. I was sitting next to Mrs. Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were twelve of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet were the oldest, and their 17-year-old son Reggie was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us the rules of the game, just as I've described them to you. Jack warned us all. If you are going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into our room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. It was about 10 years ago before we came here. There was a party and they were playing hide and seek. The girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs, and she was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went around making sure all the lights were off except the ones in the servant's room and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared 12 sheets of paper, 
11 of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up. Then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages, in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee? After a while, the noise died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer. So Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack was last. I think we're all here now, aren't we? He remarked. He lit a match, looked up the staircase, and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as 12, then he looked puzzled. There are 13 people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. Of course, there were 12 of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, I was sure I counted 13 twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violet spoke nervously. I thought there was somebody sitting two steps above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't, but I thought there was somebody sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only 12 of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon, there were 12 people and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. We went into the breakfast room. What's the matter? I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee? I whispered. There was no answer. 
I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but suddenly I had a strange, cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch and there was nobody there. Now, I am sure I touched a hand and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagined that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together, we turned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Edward paused a moment, and the fire on the hearth leaped up for a second and then died down again. But in that gleam, I saw all faces were turned to, and that some wore a look of dreadful expectancy. Certainly, I felt it myself. But in that gleam, I saw that all faces were turned to Edward, and that all wore some look of dreadful expectancy. Certainly, I felt it myself, and waited in a sort of shrinking horror for what came next. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever, but it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. At first, I stayed with the others, but for several minutes, no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Ah, I thought, I've caught me. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee, I whispered. There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, what's your name? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came, Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark young woman. 
So here she was, sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. But Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the person or persons who have bound Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and got no answer. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her. But now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing. I remembered touching her arm and I trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would come along soon. Just then, I heard light footsteps in the passage. Someone on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. Smee whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course, she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Edward, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind. Edward will break the rules. Do you know, Edward, this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I'd like to play a nice quiet game all together beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player, somebody who ought not to be here at all. That was exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean. I was Smee this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was pulled back, and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman, and then on my other side. 
between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once. Then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick, and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Corman in a trembling voice, and I don't think anyone could leave this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience earlier that evening. Someone's been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Sometime later, Jack wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me, and he soon told me the reason. Edward, he said, I suppose you are in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It was very rude of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was somebody else there, somebody who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack stared at me. Miss who? Brenda Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Edward, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the young woman who broke her neck on the stairs when she was playing hide-and-seek in this house ten years ago. When Edward had finished... Somebody, I don't know who, got up from his chair with a sudden movement that made me start and turned on the electric light. I do not mind confessing that I was rather glad of this. After a time, the crowd once again became lively and there were more drinks and more tales over the course of that Christmas evening. When the hour drew late at last, Edward and his wife saw us out as they always did holding coats and wishing us a happy Christmas. I was the last to cross over that warm threshold, thanking our hosts for their hospitality before venturing out into the dark of the night. Will you join us next year, asked Mrs. Chandler, and perhaps share another tale? Yes, always more tales, I replied. Good night. And indeed, there have been more tales. And perhaps one day soon, I'll tell you another. The Wraparound Story is an excerpt from Between the Lights, written by E.F. Benson in 1912. 
The Narrator's Tale, The Dancing Partner, was written by Jerome K. Jerome in 1893. Edward's Tale, Smee, was written by A. M. Burridge in 1929. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And until next time, stay spooky.